But I would direct your attention to the subject this morning. The subject is hell-bent. Steve Curtis said, well, haven't you already talked about that? I said, yes, I have, twice. In August and September, but this is part three. I just didn't think it looked good to put three up here after that, you know. The, the sequel or whatever you call it. No, this is a different... We're going to talk about something different about this than we did before. And uh, hopefully it'll be useful to you in in the things that we say. We we don't like to talk about hell very much today. But by the way, if you didn't hear those lessons and you want to, you can go to our website under sermons and just type in hell or hell, hell probably... I think there's one called Hellfire and Hellbent here, you know, and this this is like part three of that. You can type it in. It'll bring up the audio recording of those sermons you can listen to. Or you can get all that stuff as a podcast if you desire. And then you can catch up to what we're talking about. But the subject of hell is a very real Bible subject. It makes people uncomfortable. I guess it always has. But I know in modern times, in my lifetime, the, the amount of uh, the amount of talk that people do about this, especially in preaching even my own, compared to what it once was, is very minimal compared to what it once was. And in society, all that hell is is a joke, you know. Uh, they can't wait to go there because that's where all their friends are. We'll talk about that a little in a moment. That could be true, but I don't think it'll be what you think it is, as the saying goes. But Jesus is the one who talks about hell the most. He was all about, now Jesus is a loving God. He would Well, he's the one that talks about heaven the most in the Bible. And so you have to consider this. I, I think all of this is prophetic. A lot of the subjects people don't want to talk about are the ones that Jesus himself talked about, but they still say they love Jesus and he's a great teacher. But the things he talks about, the flood and Jonah and the great fish, the stories everybody doesn't believe, he's the one who talks about those, and yet they still say they love Jesus. Well, you need to take what you have, which is what Jesus' words are, and take them seriously. One of the passages where Jesus talks about this is in Matthew 18. We're going to briefly just show you about the eternal part. I want to talk about... Hell on earth this morning. And we'll see what that means. Not just hell in the afterlife. We talked about that in the other two lessons. But Jesus says, if your hand or foot caused you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It's better to enter into the life maim or lame that, rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. It's interesting, he says, enter into life. I thought we were in life. But Jesus is saying, no, the other life is entering into life. And you have two choices. You can enter into life or you can enter into everlasting fire. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. There were, where, quoting the Old Testament, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire where the worm does not die. And the fire is not quenched. We'll talk about those figures of speech a little bit more in just a moment. But Jesus is very clear about this subject. We ought not to minimize it. We ought not to make fun of it. We ought to understand what it means. And the good news, this is what the word gospel means. The good news is, is that you don't have to end up here. It's going to be your choice. You don't have to end up here. But you should fear it. Jesus is very clear about this. And if you love Jesus and what he says, you'll pay attention to this and you'll read it for yourself. Now, the Bible presents in broad overview three pictures of hell for us. One is eternal torment, which partly with those verses we just read talk about everlasting punishment, everlasting eternal fire, hell fire. 
And then there is the utter isolation of being cast from a lighted room with friends and family into the not just the darkness outside, but into the outer darkness where you have no shred of light or any scent of the idea that there's a home anywhere. You're just caught, cast into outer darkness. And if you've ever been in outer darkness, you feel alone, I can tell you that. Uh, I remember being in Mammoth Cave when I was a boy, first big trip, and uh, the fellow there, we got down to that big cavern, Mammoth Cave, in Kentucky, turned off the lights. You could do this and you can't see your hand at all. Of course, that's when I shouted out, I was about 10, Bear! Bear! Everybody everybody screamed. We had been telling us for 15 minutes that there were bears all around. I thought, well, I just thought that would be funny. I was about, it didn't go over that well with the host. Everybody screamed. They had to turn the lights back on. Anyway, it was great. (laughs) Anyway, my mother wasn't happy either. I fear her more than bears. The other, the picture then is isolation, outer darkness. And then the other one is personal disintegration or destruction. That we will be, as it were, destroyed from what we were. Now, destroy doesn't mean to annihilate. I proved that in the other sermon. Destroy means to bring to ruin so that it's useless. It doesn't, doesn't serve its purpose that it once did. It's to be ruined. And that's what this is. And we'll talk about what those, but you see that the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire, it says in the book of Revelation, and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. Here's the picture. And unfortunately, a lot of us seem to be bent on heading to hell. That's what hell bent means. It means that you just seem to be determined to go because of your rejection of what is good and true. And we see that Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the everlasting hell. Now, we're going to skip over a couple of these things as I want to move on to something else here, but uh, I went too far. I knew I would. This hell that we're talking about is not on this earth. You hear people, uh, you know, social progressives talk about, well, hell is on earth and hell is living in a ghetto or, you know, hell is being discriminated against or whatever. No. That's not the hell that Jesus was talking about. So don't get confused about that. Hell isn't just a bad place, and I live in a bad place because I live in this neighborhood and not that neighborhood, and other people have more than me and I don't have enough. No, that's not hell. You know, even, and I, I can, this is maybe an obtuse way to prove this, but when you look at what Jesus talks about Judas here, the Son of Man indeed goes just as is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good or better for that man if he had never been born. So there was a place that Judas was going to that wasn't this life that was punishment. That would be, that nothing that could happen to him on earth would be worse than where he was going because of what he would do. Now man was made to live forever in the presence of God and enjoy the blessings of God in a very direct way. And I think that's what the Garden of Eden was. And it wasn't just for those two. God intended for them to expand that garden and cover the whole earth and fill up the whole earth with this garden. And God would bless them all if they obeyed him in this case. But but we didn't, Adam and Eve didn't want that. And I don't know how much, we're not any better than them, of course. But we, but we enjoy some of God's presence in this world. Isn't that what Jesus says? God sends his reign upon the just and the unjust. And there's many indications of the Bible that God blesses all humans. When you think you've got it bad, remember something. I've come to believe that however bad you have it, God is protecting you from something worse 
God works in this world. And He just very well may, may be keeping Satan away from you from what Satan really wants to do. We see this in the book of Job. Satan wanted to do even worse than he did to Job, and God restrained his hand, as bad as it was. And that's what's happening now. But the truth is, as Christians, we share even more of God's presence and more of his blessings than other people do in this life. When I walk out as a believer, not because I'm so great, when I walk out as a believer, look at the night sky or go see the ocean or something, I appreciate that, or when I hold one of my grandchildren, I appreciate that more than unbelievers do because I know where it came from and what it means and who gave it to me and I know the eternal nature of all those things. I can appreciate even more than they can because to them it's just passing away. According to the secularists, the earth is just a speck in a universe and it means nothing. They're concerned about saving spaceship earth but in the end it's just another particle to be destroyed in the universe. You and I know the earth is not just that. What torment it must be for body and soul then to be cut off from him and the source of all pleasure and goodness gone. That's what hell is. What we're living in though is hell's overture. This is the, we're living in the precursor to hell. And men on earth can make a way to go back to the Garden of Eden as it were or a way to go to God's presence or make their way to the place of destruction. We make our way. Douglas Wilson, uh, he's a Presbyterian out in, I think, Idaho. I don't endorse everything Douglas Wilson says, but he's very very smart, very clever, and perceptive. He says, in this life, this world, is something of an overture, something of a front porch to the way things are going to be forever. The final judgment, whether it is heaven or hell, is the place where we finally become what we are become, we have been becoming. I think that's right. Hell or heaven for you is the place where you finally become what you've been becoming. You're either moving toward God, toward heaven, toward his presence and his blessings, or you're moving away from him. There isn't some static ground in the middle and you haven't picked a side yet. No, you've done that. And he says that because man is a social creature, we become what we are becoming in groups. This is an interesting idea here. I can't expound on this today, but I think it's an interesting idea. This is why cities are subject to the judgment of God. You know what he says in Matthew 11? It's going to be better in the judgment for for Sodom and Gomorrah than for Chorazin and Bethsaida. How is that? He's going to judge cities? Apparently so. This is why... So I'm thankful I don't live in some cities in the U.S. in this case. And this is why generations are subject to the judgment of God. Jesus says this. Some generations are worse. And it'll be, wor- it'll be worse for the generation, this generation, Jesus says, of his life than it will be for the generation of Sodom and Gomorrah. So there's some sense of that. But as it happened, those cultures which deny the existence of a final hell in the afterlife are those which prove themselves quite proficient in the building of prototypes of hell on earth. Those, so the cultures that reject God and his commandments and his way of living on earth and don't need him at all. They become very proficient in building societies that look like prototypes of hell. A prototype is something that shows you what something is like. It's the initial building of that. And I want to show you a few of those because I think what we're living in in the United States, among other places, has some of the elements of the prototypes of hell. And we all can see 
It isn't a secret, not some revelation. It's not a conspiracy theory that our culture is moving at rapid speed in a certain direction. Okay? And where is that direction? What is that? Is it some kind of a socialist utopia where everybody sings kumbaya, which means come by here, Lord. I, I don't know why they would sing that, but what people say. But we're moving towards some socialist utopia where everybody loves each other and, and poverty's gone and everybody lives in peace and harmony. Imagine there's no religion. Is this where we're going? To that imagine place? Or someplace else? Well, we're moving and we're moving there intentionally. And the problem, the one I've been talking about in some of these sermons the last few months here and there, is that a lot of people, including us, don't really understand why we're moving. We don't know where we're going. We don't see the big picture. I've been trying to tell you the big picture of what it's about politically and socially and religiously. When I was teaching junior high school all those years ago, we had... Uh, we had our lunch in our in the classroom, so I sat there at my desk and they ate lunch. Then they would go do you know go out for a while or whatever. And so I, I just used to watch these little group clumps of teenage girls. The boys were outside beating each other up, enjoying themselves. The girls were in a clump in the room, all talking among themselves. And then and they all sometimes they would walk out to their lockers. So I heard a group of girls coming by. I hear them talking. They're all chattering. A couple of them toward the end, one of them says, where are we going? One of them says, I don't know. Okay. And they walked on out the door. Where are we going? Oh, I don't know. We're just following all these other girls right out the door. I believe that represents a good portion of the American people and a good portion of the religious people in this country. They're just moving with whatever the other people are doing in music, culture, and what they believe, what they think, the attitudes they have toward big, important things. They're just moving with the culture, and they have no idea where it's going, why they're doing it, except that everybody else is doing it. And that's just following along. This is what, this is what the people who are hell-bent on taking you to a certain place, this is what they're counting on. And until we show some resistance to this and some pushback, we're going to keep going along this way as a culture. Now, personally, you don't have to believe this, but what I'm looking for in America is some pushback. And, and until we get enough of it, expect things to get much worse. Because they are going somewhere. Don't make no mistake about it. The intellectuals and the elites of our society are taking you somewhere. And it goes to Europe, too. It isn't just the United States. They may be ahead of us in some of this, others. But let's look at a couple of these things. We're going to have run out of time here real fast. But the three pictures are eternal torment. I'm going to add to this. I think one of the pictures of eternal torment is, and Gehenna, that's the old name for hell in the Bible, is the abortion culture in the United States. And it's not just... I don't think abortion is just something that happens. Uh, it's unfortunate, but every so often something happens. A girl is raped or incest or something, and so we have to do an abortion. We all regret it. Is that where we are? Don't kid yourself. Don't kid me. That isn't where we are. Most abortions are happening by 
by middle class, middle class women and their husbands are often pushing them this way or their boyfriends. It's happening to middle class people who choose this way because it's my body, my choice, meaning I don't like this. I don't want this to happen. I'm trying to make, make money. I'm trying to be, keep my figure and I don't want what pregnancy is going to do to my body and my bank account. And my career, which is the most important thing that you could possibly have as a woman, is my career. And, and so this is where abortion is a problem. It isn't because of those exceptional cases on the edges that we could have a legitimate debate about when there's something like rape or incest. That's not what, that's not what abortion's about in the United States. Why do you think people are reacting so, such an extreme way when we try to limit it to the first few months of pregnancy? Why are they having such an extreme reaction? Because it's not about those cases over here are less than 1% that they say it's about. It's about them having ultimate autocratic choice over what happens to another life. Now, you know, this is... In the Bible, there was this place called the Valley of Hinnom. It's outside on the edge of Jerusalem. And during the time when Israel began to fall away, after Solomon erected altars there to false gods... The other kings began to erect altars there in the Valley of Hinnom. And one of the gods of that time was Moloch or Molech. And the Israelites were condemned for passing their children through the fire because they were worshiping Molech. And the Bible is, God, God I think, is so ashamed of this that he, he refers to it eight or nine times, but it's in veiled language a little bit. He, he even says in Jeremiah that it never came in my mind that you would do this at at my temple, that you would kill your own children at my temple. But they would take a statue, the statue made out of metal like this, and they would build a fire inside this great metal statue to Molech, and the hands would get red hot. Then they would bring their children, uh, the ones they had set aside to be sacrificed, up and lay them on the hands of this altar, of this God. That's how they would sacrifice to the gods. You think that's bad? Have you ever read the description of a partial birth abortion or a suction abortion? You think this is bad? Go read that description of what, what they have. And you know, when they get done sucking all those body parts out of the woman, the, the machines they use to do abortions, they suck all that out, or whatever age it is, into a, and they have to put it into a pan and count the limbs and the eyes and the head. They have to count all the body parts to make sure that they got everything. Now this is called health care. I know that you're disgusted by that. I want you to be disgusted by that. I'm, I'm not apologetic about that. It takes a certain kind of mindset, one that's almost hell-bent, to do this just because a woman says, I want to. There may be legitimate reasons, but I want to, and I decided I'm going to, is not a good one. Yes, Gary? Well, yes, they're selling the genetics and the body parts. It, it, it is an unbelievable thing that we have going and that we're protecting and Christians are voting in favor of this by what they do. I, I, it's hard for me to express my contempt for this whole attitude. In spite of the fact that I could logically see even in the political civil sense where we would allow some abortions at some times for various reasons. I'm not going to deny that that's a possibility. But that's not what we're talking about here. You know, God, God said to them, uh, and Leviticus, and the, then the Lord spoke to Moses, and this is before this ever happened. This is pre this all happening in Israel. Again, you shall say to the children of Israel, whoever, 
Whoever the children of Israel or the strangers who dwell in the land, who gives any of his descendants to Molech, he shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I will set my face against that man. I will cut him off from his people because he has given some of his children descendants to Molech. Some of his descendants. See, that's what we have today. We abort this child, that child. We keep this child, we keep that child. I saw a woman standing there with two little children with a sign at a protest the other day saying, I wouldn't do this to anyone. Don't let this happen to anyone. She's got a sign up with her other two children. She's protesting. It's, it's almost too shameful to comprehend. I wouldn't want to be those two children. But anyway. And if the people of the land should in any way hide their eyes from that man when he gives some of his sentence to Molech, and they do not kill him, then I will set my face against that man and his family. I will cut him off from his people and all who prostitute themselves with him to commit harlotry with Molech. Now then you have this case of the king, one of the kings. This is Manasseh in Second Chronicles. And he caused his sons to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom. There's the valley of the son of Hinnom. Remember that name. This is where he did it. Right there by Jerusalem. And he practiced through saying, used witchcraft and sorcery and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil inside of the Lord to provoke him to anger. It goes on. Then you have another king. This is Josiah. Later, who read the law and said, this is all wrong. He defiled Topheth. That's one of the altars there, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no man might make his son or his daughter pass through the fire to Molech. So, Valley of Hinnom is Gehenna in Hebrew. Or Gehinnom. Geh meaning valley. And so, in the New Testament, when you come to words for hell, that Jesus is talking about hell, that's the word that's used in the Greek New Testament. Gehenna. It's referring to this. The fundamental thing he's referring to, strange enough, is child sacrifice. And he uses that as the word for hell. So I don't think I'm all out of the left field somewhere to say that this culture of, of eternal torment in hell and Gehenna, which Jesus talked about, has a link to sacrificing our children, you see. And so it's not the only thing, but it's the religious, it's the sacrament. Modern progressive political thinking and cultural thinking cannot exist in the form it is now without the sacrament of abortion. Abortion is, why do they defend it so much? Why can't they negotiate or budge on it? They can't. It's the centerpiece of their religion. Are we going to negotiate on the Lord's Supper? We can't. Without that, we don't, don't have anything to worship with. It's the sacrament. Because it represents ultimate human choice. Ultimate human power. Not God's power, but human power to destroy what God created. This is what humans this is, what, this is what this represents to people. It's not about a woman being raped. It's about ultimate human power and the rejection of the divine power. And so it is that modern Christians should learn to think of Planned Parenthood clinics, this is Douglas Wilson, as precursors of hell, as the anterooms of damnation. The fact that federal tax dollars still support this horror show demonstrates our enthusiasm over the trailer and our hell-bent intention of going to see the movie. This is the trailer, and we love it, and we're going to keep it because we want to see the movie. Some of you movie fans are like that about 
some movie coming out, you just watch that trailer over and over again because you just can't wait to see the movie. Well, do you want to see this movie called Hell? Here's the passage you got to remember. Genesis 1. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, and he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. God created two sexes, male and female. He gave, created with them an extraordinary power to create more humans. The, the miracle of human conception, I call miracle in a loose sense there. It is, it is a wonder. In fact, according to people that study these things, it's more of a wonder that woman, women can conceive than that they do conceive because of the way God made it. was, And so it's a blessing. It has to be... Things have to be the way God made them for it to happen. And we take this and make it nothing. In fact, we try to eliminate... Since the 60s, since I was a young man, young boy, we've tried to eliminate this whole thing. What did God say? See, this is where the Christian worldview and the secular worldview are completely incompatible. Some Christian religions try to reach in and grab this secular worldview to say that life isn't important, want to denigrate life. God says, I want there to be humans. I want there to be a lot of humans. I want you to keep making humans. That's why God made the earth, so that humans could fill it up. This is so opposite of our environmentally friendly or whatever our, our, our uh, the environmental movement. This is so opposite of the environmental movement. But this is what the Bible says. It's just a simple question. Which one do you believe? Which worldview do you think is right? Even if you don't know all the facts and information about it, which one is right? The one that says humans are important. There need to be as many as there possibly can of them. And God says he'll bless them and take care of them. God blessed them. So we think, oh no, we're all going to die because there's too many people. I go back in my mind, I say, look, from what I know, God will bless us. God blesses us. They were all, we're all going to starve in the 1700s. Because according to Malthus, it's the same guy, same thing they believe today, that there's just too many humans, we won't be able to feed them. Humans that were born, that Malthus would have got rid of, created ways to feed more humans. And make their lives even better. Our way of living since the 1700s is exponentially better with more, exponentially more people. Why, why is that? Because of this verse. God said he would bless us if we, if we brought life into the world. He made the world so there would be people for him to save and live with forever. I think the world's going to last a long time. I know people disagree with that. I think it's going to last a long time because he's still waiting to get all the people he wants to take to heaven. And he wants a lot of them. As the stars of the heavens and the sand of the sea. Because he loves people so much. What do progressives hate? They hate human beings. That's what they hate. They want to get rid of them. And if they can't live a certain lifestyle, get rid of them. You know what's the new thing coming down the pike? Euthanasia for perfectly healthy people. It's already being practiced in Europe. People who are, and now Canada, people who are depressed, especially teenagers, can now go to the doctor and get a shot, and they'll be assisted in killing themselves. Can you imagine how many teenagers would be dead if we let teenagers kill themselves because they got depressed? I'd be one of them. That's what teenagers do. They get depressed. They eat a lot, sleep a lot, and get depressed. That's what they do. 
how does he know? He's an old man. Well, I used to be one. Okay, I was a classic 1960s and 70s teenager. So I know about that. And we get depressed. And so you start giving them the power to kill themselves. Or at the other end of life, here's an old person, can't get around very well, doesn't have very many friends, he's hurting a lot. Let's get rid of them. Our medical system right now does this in many ways. It's all geared to get rid of you when they deem that you are useless or nobody cares about. If you've got a relative in the hospital, the best thing you can do is go there continually and bring as many people as you can. That'll signal to the people there, this one's not going to be as easy to kill because somebody cares about it. You let the person in the nursing home sit there and nobody comes, they know they can get rid of that one because nobody cares. I know you think I'm crazy. Just wait a few years and you will see this. what's really there. Because progressivism does not value life. Values its own life, but not life. Now, the other picture we don't have time to go into much is utter isolation, outer darkness. Man was made to live, live forever in communion with God and other humans. Other humans. What's the picture of heaven? The picture of heaven is of throngs of people and angels singing together as one unit, raising their voices and praise to God around God's throne, enjoying this beautiful communion forever. What's the picture of hell? Isolated, lonely people screaming in agony by themselves. There's a complete difference in pictures between heaven and hell as it relates to people. How are you meant to be? Humans are ultimately social animals of the highest degree. We don't survive and do well unless we have other people with us. But our sin slowly isolates us from our, uh, into our own desires. We slowly get isolated into our own desires. And that's why the mantra is, my body, my choice. The ultimate mantra is, I'm me, I'm going to do whatever I want, and I don't care if that affects other people around me. This is where this generation is. My generation is called the me generation. Then there was the me, me, me generation. I don't know what you call this one. But it's ultimately so individually isolated that only my will, only what I want matters. And in the end, that, that cuts us off from other people. Why do we see all this disunity and division in society? Oh, it's because you have Republicans that are mean and nasty, Democrats are loony tuned. Oh, that's not it. It's because everybody is an individual that has to exert their individual will at the cost of everything else and they can't find anything to be united on because they're going to do what they want to do. And the more that you insist on doing what you want to do, I'll tell you what, you're in a family, you just keep insisting that you're going to do whatever you want to do and nobody can tell you what to do. I'll tell you what's going to happen to you. You're going to be cast out of the family. You're going to be alone You'll find yourself alone. Oh, that's what I want. Well, okay. Get ready to enjoy it. Because you'll be alone. Others will be there in this darkness that God casts us into, but we'll be cut off. We'll be alone in our suffering. There is no community in the outer darkness. There are no friends. There's no parties. No get-togethers. And no, certainly no orgies. Oh, I can't wait to go to hell because all my friends will be there. We'll have one big orgy. God ain't going to tell us what to do anymore. Really? You think that's what the picture of hell is in the Bible? Everybody having a good time having an orgy? No. 
The only thing left is the dried bone of me, myself, and I, which is now a gumless ego, which now a gumless ego keeps trying to gnaw on. That's probably about right. And then lastly, there's this picture of dark, utter dark, uh, personal, personal disintegration. Real quickly, I know it's late, but re- personal disintegration. We don't know much about this word disintegration. It's not a word we use commonly, but to be integrated is to be held together. It, all the parts fit together and are working together. That's to be integrated. And then disintegration is when that's broken apart and the parts are scattered away from each other and they don't function together anymore. For to, to be personally disintegrated is even when your own personal self has come to ruin and cannot function anymore and cannot fulfill its purpose because it's, just, it's been blown into pieces. In this great battle for the dictionary that is raging, and this is, <laughs> I was teasing Matt by using a big word yesterday, ontological, or maybe it was the day before. It's an ontological, Matt, you know what I was talking about, didn't you? Ontological, ontological means the, the definition of things, essentially. That's where we are. We're def- Every word that you and I have known all of our lives is in all the literature that's been written for 500 years has now been altered in meaning. Okay, It's all been altered. Male and female, altered. Community, altered. A new definition. Love, altered. Completely changed. And you got, and you, to, to follow these people, it changes all the time. You got to keep up, you got to follow the dictionary. Twitter becomes the dic- new dictionary. However, they're using it on there. Then you get to go see how the word is used. And you, and you have to use it that way. You have to use it that way or else. I saw this with some of the kids the other day. I mentioned something about um, oriental food. <gasps> Their jaws still off to the floor. Oriental food. I'm, what? It's oriental. You can't say that. I said, okay, I just did, but I mean, I don't know what you mean. I can't. You can't call, you have to call it Asian food. Well, I can tell you, that's a real insult if you're Asian. Because how many different kinds of Asians are there? Have dozens? People from Sri Lanka don't want to be called Malaysian, but you, we're so, we're so arrogant. Oh, you're, you're the one that's arrogant because you called them, I said oriental just means something from the east. Well, that's racist because the east means east from Europe. I said, yeah, I know, that's where I live. <clears throat> Even in the American Poultry Association, that great livestock organization I'm a part of and a judge in, the American Poultry Association, has a class of chickens called the oriental class. Why? Because they disrespect people who are Chinese or Japanese. No, because those people have been in some great poultry. That's why they're in there. But they they change they change the definition. All of a sudden, I got I got to bow the knee and genuflect to the people that make the new dictionary, and I got to agree to use the word the way they want me to use it. I don't agree to use the word the way they want to be used. You shouldn't agree either. Use words for what they mean, and don't accept the definitions that are given you. Once you accept, I'm a debater, an old style. Once you once I can get the other team to accept my definitions. I won the debate. Not even a question. We're so happy. We lay out our terms in the debate. We give our definitions. And when they don't object to them, I look at my partner and I say, not problem. Not, we, we got this one. Because once they accept my definitions that I've created to get what I want out of the discussion, then they're done. We're accepting the definitions all along. But one of the words was community. Now we speak readily of the trans community, the gay and lesbian community. We can have, you know, this community, that community, but there can be no communities 
And people even talk about Christian communities. Interesting. Just there can be no marriage without men and women making love like normal people. Have they redefined marriage? You better believe they redefined marriage and you just go along with it. We even let them say gay marriage. Is there such a thing in the Bible as gay marriage? I know how this works, but is it really? What's happening? I just killed something or just... I think that's a hint that I'm talking too long. If I had the mental power today, I would just stop. And I'm going to, but give me a second to do this. At least they didn't come up with that girl. For those who are new, we had this come off. And Bob's just, every time I turn this TV, an episode of That Girl from the 1960s we playing up there. Some people really liked it. It was very entertaining for a while. But uh, I, I somehow I changed it. I don't even know how I did that. But human beings are going to be saved as a group. Oh, they'll be judged individually. But they're judged so they can go into the group. And we go to heaven. It isn't going to be me, myself, and I in heaven. It's going to be me as a part of that group of believers. Distinct, but of that group. We're going to stop. I want to point you back to the book of Acts as we close. Because what I want to say to you in that is be saved from this crooked generation. Twisted and crooked you know what Peter said? Generation. You know, what's happened here before our eyes, if I can make this simple point, is that all of these good things that we see around us have been distorted by, as it were, definitions. And so, what the Bible says is that in Christ, all things consist. That's a great statement about Christ. All things, and that's a word for glue in Greek. All things are held together. And this applies down to the molecular level where in each atom there are protons that should be repelled by each other. And I think physicists call it the strong force that holds those two protons together. Unexplainable. Holds those two protons together to make a molecule of everything that we see around us. Literally, the ESV, if you have that, says he is before all things and in him all things hold together. So we need to, we need to, starting from the time our children are small, get rid of your garbage pale kids and your ugly, disgusting dolls and movies and visual things. Get rid of this in their life. Focus on something different. Reject in your life the ugly. Because this is a twisting of what is good. C.S. Lewis pictured it this way. If I can take this a moment. He said God began to see. He told a myth. God began to sing and good things began to All the things began to come into existence. The trees, the earth, the brooks, streams, flowers, all began to come into existence. And then Satan over on the other side, he didn't call him that, but that's who he was. He saw this and thought, well, this is cool. He began to sing and yet his song wasn't God's and everything ugly began to grow alongside it. Everything twisted and bent and broken and disgusting began to grow alongside it. And this is where we are. Reject the violent, the shameful, the macabre, the dead, the twisted, the scornful. Reject the proud. Reject that which is untrue. 
Reject all of that in your life so you can be held together by Christ. Hold on to the good, the right, the beautiful, the way, the truth, the life. Even more basically, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. You, you see all these trios of things. Hold on to that. Reject the other. And hold on to the good. Christians need to start doing this. We get caught up in that we're down here in the mud with people. But the old saying is, when you wrestle with a pig, you get dirty, muddy, and he likes it. That's the problem. Thank you for listening today. I know it's been long. But what, what I want to turn you to is that verse in Acts 2 where Peter says in verse 36 or 41 or so, save yourselves from this crooked generation. How you do that? He told those people who had killed the Lord, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You'll receive salvation, forgiveness, and you can turn the other way and go another direction. That's what I appeal to you to do this morning. We can help you with that. Everything is ready. We have water. We have robes to dress to change into. All these people here desire your salvation and care about what happens to you as well as themselves. You'll come down to the front. We can help you today. Let's stand the same.